Good afternoon. I'm Rachel Cassandra. Welcome to Midday Magazine for Wednesday, April 5th. Petersburg School District is asking the borough to contribute additional funding to this year's budget. The schools have been scraping by with state funding that has remained essentially flat for six years. The borough's contribution to the school district has also remained flat for two decades, aside from a small increase last year. District Superintendent Erica Klutpainter and Finance Director Karen Morrison presented the school district's budget pressures to the borough assembly on Monday. Here's Morrison. Our funding levels for this fiscal year are the same as they were in fiscal 14, but our costs for running the school district have greatly increased, especially with utilities and heating fuel. Painter and Morrison say they have run the budget very conservatively, and Morrison says the administration has only a bare-bones staff. Administratively, we're, we're pretty lean. Welcome to the HR department. Welcome to the Grants Management Department uh, curriculum. I mean, we're, we're about as lean as you can get. The district expects to get almost half a million dollars less in state funding next fiscal year because of reduced enrollment. They say that's similar to many school districts. And they will have one additional cost due to new legislation requirements, a salary for an additional reading specialist. Morrison says, ultimately, the school district's budget can be balanced by either more funding or cuts. So some of the solutions could be the increase of local contribution of $3 million from the borough, additional state funds, or reduced programs. So that's kind of where we're at with, with our current situation. Some of that $3 million could come from increases in state funding. The state house on Monday approved a one-time increase to the base student allocation of $860. If the bill passes, that would equal about $6,600 of state funding per average student. Morrison and Clute Painter said the borough contributions could also be in-kind, such as reducing maintenance or utility bills for the school district. Right now, Petersburg does not contribute the maximum funds to its school district called the CAP. That is a state-designated amount that encourages local matching to state funds. Clute Painter says Petersburg is on the low end of matching state contributions to schools. The rest of the the districts around us are are either funded close to or at the CAP, or they have other in-kind kinds of things that they do. Craig buys the wood chips for their boiler system that they have down there. They have one of those wood fire boiler systems. So the borough buys the chips for that, that kind of thing. Right now, the borough contributes around $2 million to the school district per year. They can contribute up to $1.2 million more yearly to reach the current cap. If state funding increases, the local contribution cap will also increase. Herring season in Sitka is a study in contrasts. Each spring for the last 45 years, large saners land tons of herring whose egg sacs are stripped and sold as a delicacy on the international market, often for millions. But the frenzy and money around the commercial sacro fishery overshadows a far quieter indigenous fishing tradition that's taken place for millennia. In Sitka, Catherine Rose recently accompanied a pair of subsistence harvesters in search of one of Sitka Sound's most valued food resources, herring eggs on hemlock branches. 
It's a clear Sunday morning in March, and the herring are on the move. Paulette Moreno and Andrew Roberts are slowly motoring north through Sitka Sound. Their 16-foot yellow boat, nicknamed Tweety Bird, is loaded up with five hemlock branches to set today. The traditional Hlinket herring egg harvest has begun. Moreno has been harvesting row on branches for around 15 years. Roberts has been doing it for most of his life. He points to a rocky area on the western side of Middle Island that's been productive in the past. This is usually a pretty good spot that where that boat is, right in that little gut there. That's where we uh, traditionally, you know, when they start spawning here, there'll be 50 to 100 sets in there. This is a real popular place. They're cruising along when an announcement from the Alaska Department of Fish and Game comes over VHF radio. Uh, yeah, big story of the morning. We have about two nautical miles of spawn uh, that started this morning down around Shoals Point. On, uh, yeah, basically the whole point is going off. The sun is out, but the water is a bit choppy, so Moreno and Roberts may not make it out to Shoals Point which is about nine miles of open water away from where we are now on the southeastern tip of Kruzoff Island. But they're not worried. They've already set some trees in that area. Moreno says for the last three years, she and the Herring Protectors, a local advocacy group, have been setting protection trees to call attention to traditional fishing grounds that should be avoided by commercial seining vessels. So they're complete sets, and we put them in strategic locations, and then we call it Fish and Game and tell them <laughs> where they're at. We can set where and when we want, and these protection sets are to remind people who pass that area that there are sets out there, and uh, sometimes those sets do really good, but the idea of a protection tree is to do that to protect the herring and the area. They slow their boat down in the lee of Middle Island to wait for the wind to die down. Roberts breaks out a rod and reel and begins to troll for salmon. It's a delicate waiting game. The window to set branches at just the right time has shrunk in recent years. Right before our eyes, instead of seeing this spawn for three or four days, we literally are seeing it pass through in four hours. Unheard of. Unheard of. Roberts says it didn't used to be that way. It was so so thick I've seen as a, as a toddler that when the... Uh, uh, tide went out, herring would be stuck in the tide pools because there's no, you know, the sand was so full that there was no place fish to go. Uh, so, uh, you know, I've seen it just in my generation, uh, how, how uh, you know, how plentiful the herring were. And uh, it's, it's, it's not that way anymore. He believes that's due to years of mismanagement of the commercial fishery. 2022 saw the biggest commercial harvest in Sitka's history, 25,000 tons, which was just over half of the 45,000 tons the Department of Fish and Game allowed that year. In 2019 and 2020, the market crashed and there was no commercial fishing at all. Marino remembers how good those years were for traditional harvesters. It was the year that COVID had just started, and we came through Middle Island, and it was a very calm, beautiful day. It was native heaven again because there were boats and skiffs and it was calm, it was peaceful, there was spawn everywhere. 
There was no competition with a commercial fleet whatsoever. Everybody's waving and smiling. We're all coming down our branches. She yearns for that undisturbed time on the water. While she's called for moratoriums of the commercial fishery in the past and would still like to see that, she suggests a year on and a year off could be a place where traditional harvesters and commercial fishermen could find compromise. It would give us as harvesters a chance to go out undisturbed and be in that native heaven, you know, that we experience when there are not obstacles and we are closest to our spirit and our way of life. And then it would give the herring a chance to replenish those different years. So yes, every other year I think would be good, but we need help in pursuing it because the organizations that we have to go to 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 try to just bring these things forward are um, not always receptive. That time out on the water is important to Moreno because traditional harvesting is much more, much deeper than the word subsistence suggests something that we need as a people to survive in the best way possible because this feeds our spirits and not only our spirits there are Alaska Native and Native Alaskans who share this with us who are hungry for balance in this world who are hungry for things that matter the most and this is one of them so we need that to be uninhibited. The closer that we are to less barriers and challenges and obstacles just to get the food that we have always eaten, the less barriers, the closer we are to our core. Every barrier that's put up that we need to deal with brings us further from our very soul and our very way of life. And it's a sacred, beautiful way of life. And that's all we're asking is to be able to practice that. As the pair troll back towards town, over the VHF radio, commercial fishermen let each other know where they're going next to look for schools of herring. Roberts and Moreno laugh. They can see a big school of herring on their depth sounder just below the boat. But they'll keep it to themselves today. The herring were right there with us, Moreno later said as we got off the boat in Sealing Cove. That's communication. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Catherine Rose. Congressman, con- Congresswoman Mary Peltola declined again yesterday to pass judgment on the case against former President Donald Trump. I personally feel like as a member of the legislative branch, it's not really my place to comment on things in the judicial branch. She spoke from Anchorage on Talk of Alaska, a weekly call-in show produced by Alaska Public Media. Trump pleaded guilty, not guilty, to 34 felony counts of falsifying business records. Peltola says she trusts that the case against Trump will be decided fairly in court. But, she says, the loud ruckus outside the court Tuesday discouraged her. I think it's a bleak day for Americans because this is just one more divisive issue. And we're such a deeply divided country. Two callers asked about gun violence and banning assault rifles. Peltola reiterated her support of the Second Amendment. She says she's open to solutions, but is leery of supporting bills that don't have a chance of passing. 
After 50 years of operation, Juno's Augustus Brown Pool has closed for major renovations. City Aquatics Manager Tara Patterson described some of the upcoming improvements on Juno Afternoon last week. The recreation pool will be resurfaced. Uh, we're getting new electric plumbing. Uh, the locker rooms, I think, are probably the biggest piece that people will notice the most. Um, so the locker rooms are being completely renovated. But one part of the locker rooms will live on in a new art installation. The tiles painted in 1999 by Juno Kids. In Juno, Katie Anastas visited the pool with one of the original tile artists and has this story. Christy Simonson walks to the end of the women's locker room at the Augustus Brown pool. She points to one of the hand-painted tiles on the shower wall. So this is mine. Simonson was working as a lifeguard in 1999. The second and third graders needed help painting tiles. So she and her sister Marta volunteered. We went out there to help the kids come in and pick out tiles and ideas and kind of help them through it. And there were a couple extra tiles and they offered, they said, do you guys want to paint? So my sister and I did. Those tiles have lined the locker room showers for more than 20 years. Simonson's tile has streaks of green across a dark blue sky. It looks like I did some northern lights on the horizon, which I still love to this day. Her sister painted stick figures swimming in a pool lane and wrote, I love to swim at 4.45 a.m., a nod to their early morning high school swim practices. So there was like snow blizzards we were driving through in the pitch black, freezing cold to come swimming in the pool for an hour before high school would start. It was just kind of a sarcastic joke because no one really loves doing that, but we love the sport and being with the team. So it was worth it. Simonson's love of the sport started early. I tried out for swim team. I when I was six, so in 1985. <laughs> and um, basically from then until 99, I was here, it was my life. She built a community around the teammates, coaches, coworkers, and Juno residents who visited the pool every day. She taught swim lessons for kids. One summer, she led aerobic activity classes for seniors. They would be in the pool, I would be on the deck, we would do a workout routine and kind of listen to some music as we went back and forth with the exercises. But it was just a great way from a teenager's perspective to connect with like the seniors in the community and develop a relationship. In the remodeled lobby, high-resolution photos of the original tiles will sit alongside new art. Last month, the city asked kids to submit drawings of their favorite experiences at the pool. Simonson hopes the new generation of artists will look back fondly on their artwork and the pool like she does. She says it's kind of like a church. Just a sanctuary for people to come and exercise and kind of let your stresses go. Or maybe, you know, if you've had a bad day, come exercise or come sit in the sauna. And it's just a place where you can bring your kids and then your kids' kids come. And it, yeah, it's, it's nice. The Augustus Brown Pool will remain closed until at least the end of the year. In the meantime, Juno residents can swim at the Diamond Park Aquatic Center in the Mendenhall Valley. In Juno, I'm Katie Anastas. And for KFSK, I'm Rachel Cassandra.